Thank you, Gary. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. Gospel of John, chapter 2, and our Bibles this morning. If you're visiting with us today, we're studying this wonderful account of John, of the Gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, I'm enjoying our study very much, and as a church we are. Uh, we're seeing... Uh, just, just really getting started in our study. In chapter 1, we've seen how God came to this earth as Jesus, born of a Virgin Mary. Uh, Jesus uh, was God and is God, and he's called the Word, which communicates to us that Jesus coming to this earth was the revelation of God himself in the form of a man to all of mankind. And uh, he, as we read and studied in chapter 1, uh, he is eternal. That is, he had no beginning and he has no end. Uh, we read in chapter 1 how he's the creator of the heavens and the earth. Jesus, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And, uh, but then he became a man. He came unto his own, the Bible says, and his own received him not. You can imagine what that must have been like. You know, you, you and I have people that we love and that we're close to. Uh, we call them family. Um, and you can imagine what it would be like to go to those who you would expect to receive you with open arms and, uh, and yet to be rejected and to be turned away. And Jesus was rejected by many, but he was also received by many. And we saw John the Baptist and his faithful testimony, his faithful witness. He identified Jesus as the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. And the disciples of John, these Old Testament saints believed John the Baptist's testimony, and they believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And they began to follow him. Last week we were in Cana. Do you remember that? A ag small agric agricultural town just north of Nazareth, about nine miles north of Nazareth. Cana doesn't really exist today. Uh, it's just a rural area, not much there. But uh, in those days it was small, and Jesus went to a wedding, and he turned. It was his first miracle and he turned the water there into wine. And we talked about that, uh, how Jesus was, uh, he did a miracle. It was a sign that he was indeed the Messiah, but it was a miracle and a sign really to, uh, on a small scale, small town, family and friends. I don't think most of the people at the wedding had any idea that it had happened. But some did, some did. And they believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at our text here. Uh, John chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse number 12. John chapter 2, verse number 12. I'll read down to the end of the chapter, verse 25. It says in verse 12, After this, after the turning the water into wine in Cana, after this he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. That would have been about 90 miles away. And found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge, and that is a whip, of small cords, so it wasn't some impressive whip, just a scourge, whip of small cords, like binder twine. He drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep, and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money, 
and overthrew or overturned the tables. This is not normally how we think of Jesus during his earthly ministry, is it? What's, what's going on here? Verse 16. And he said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence. Get them out of here. Make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? What authority? With what authority are you doing this? Is what they're asking. Verse 19. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building. It wasn't finished yet. And wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. They believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Verse 23. And when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them. He did not entrust himself unto them. He did not. They believed in him with a kind of belief. But he, knowing their hearts, did not believe in them. That's what it's saying here. Because he knew all men. And needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. There are two truths I want to see from the passage this morning, and there are two attributes of God. The first is, I notice that Jesus was omnipotent. All power belonged to him. What he does in this passage, I believe with all of my heart, is a miracle of impressive proportion greater, I would say to you, than what he had done in Cana. The second attribute of God I notice in this passage is that he's omniscient. And you saw it right at the end there. He knows, he knew what was in the hearts of the people who claimed to believe upon him. He knew them. And you know that Jesus Christ knows every single one of us as well. Every thought that we've ever had, that we're having, or ever will have, the Lord Jesus Christ knows. And so in this passage this morning, we see again that Jesus is God. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, help us, I pray, as we look at your word this morning. Father, teach us, I pray, by your spirit. Father, may our faith in you grow and strengthen. May you be pleased. May your word produce wonderful fruit in our lives. Father, may our lives be different as we trust you more. And I believe this will be true. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, remember, and you might get tired of me saying this, but I'm probably going to say it so much you might actually memorize the passage of Scripture, but remember the purpose for this account of the Gospel, John's account of the Gospel. Why is it that John's writing this? Well, you remember in John 20 and verse 30, It says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. He wants, he wanted, and he still wants to this day, 
us to have life through his name. Um, you remember, what, I could ask the question, what kind of life does a person receive who receives the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior? And the answer is everlasting life. Um, the Bible tells us that he came into this world that we might have life and that we might have that life more abundantly. And I could ask all of us this morning, what kind of life are you living? Many in this room today would say, well, I'm a born-again child of God. I have, I'm the possessor of everlasting life. And we all should ask ourselves the question, well, are we living that life? Or is that the life that you're experiencing? Everlasting life? Or... Are you just kind of slogging your way through this life on earth? And you're looking toward heaven with wonderful hope and anticipation of a day where you will no longer be in slavery to sin and you will no longer be in bondage to it. But I remind you of this. If you have received the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are no longer in bondage or in slavery to sin. You have everlasting. You are the possessor of everlasting life today, here and now. And God wants you to live it. And he wants me to live it as well. And so uh, that life comes as we believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we first receive everlasting life the day we believe upon him and put our faith and trust in him. But then, then after we are saved, we don't have a need to be saved again. But we do have a need to continue to believe upon his name. Each and every day, living by faith, we sang that hymn. And I almost stood and interrupted Pastor Tolman for just a moment because by faith, which pleases God, living by faith is when we take God at his word. When we do what he says, that's faith. And it pleases God. All right, now, when we read the account, and we just read through it here in John chapter 2, when we read this account, we don't normally think of this account as a miracle. In fact... Most of my life, I've read this account, and I've never really looked at it as a miracle. But I, I, I really believe with all of my heart that it, that it truly is. In, in this account, in John chapter 2, Jesus didn't heal anybody. He didn't raise anybody from the dead. And in the passage that I just read to you, he didn't turn the water into wine. And we could say, well, what does he do? Well, what does he do? He, he makes himself a whip, and he drives some oxen and some sheep. And some people, it says, all of them out of the temple. And, and in our auditorium this morning, if I were to ask you for the dimensions of the temple or um, the, the number of people who would have been there on this particular day, we would probably not know. Uh, we might think, well, there might have been a couple of cows and a couple of a few sheep, and, and then there were a, a, a few doves, and, and there were some bad guys making money off of people who are trying to come and worship God. And, and maybe there were, what, I don't know, a dozen, a dozen animals and, and 20 people. We wouldn't know necessarily off the top of our head what was happening. And I want you to know that kind of thinking on a small scale is not what Jesus dealt with here in the temple on this particular day. I believe it was a miracle. And I want us to understand the enormity of it this morning. Now, many, most of Jesus' miracles, I think, were driven by compassion. Um, now, he had a purpose so that we would believe, but we see his compassion most often in his miracles. He takes a blind man, and he, he makes a blind man to see. We see his compassion in that. He comes to where uh, Lazarus had been buried, and his sisters are 
weeping and they're sad and brokenhearted. The family's brokenhearted and Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. We see his compassion in that. He, he makes a paralyzed man walk again when his friend, that man's friends, bring him to Jesus. And we see Jesus' compassion. But this particular miracle, we see righteous indignation. And I'll go one step further, we see anger. Now, did Jesus ever sin? No. He was perfect. Is all anger sin? No. It's not all sin. Now, the reason we might be, we, we, we went, uh, or we said, yes, it is. You know, most of the anger, what, whose anger are we most familiar with? Our own. That's why we tend to see it as sin. Because I dare say that most of the time, when you and I are angry, it's sin. Okay, it's fleshly, it's ungodly, but Jesus was God He was righteous and holy, and in this particular passage, we see that he was angry, and there was righteous indignation, and it was not sinful, okay? And you need to know that right up front. So most of his miracles were driven by compassion. The the miracle in Cana, where we've just come from, was a miracle in relative obscurity in front of some family and friends, really in the middle of nowhere, But this miracle is driven by righteous indignation. It's done 90 miles to the south, or 100 miles or so to the south of where Cana was, in in the most famous city in the entire world, the city of Jerusalem. Now, in that city, in the temple, in the temple complex, there were anywhere from 10 to 25,000 people. There weren't a few dozen, there weren't a hundred, there weren't two hundred. There would have been anywhere from ten to 25,000 people on this particular day on the Temple Mount. It was anything but private. It was not like the miracle in Cana. Now, the spiritual condition in Jerusalem and in Israel in those days was similar to what it had been in the, in the days of Isaiah the prophet. And I want you to leave John chapter 2, and I want you to go all the way back to Isaiah chapter 1, because I want you to get an idea of what Jesus was up against and what he saw when he walked into the temple on this particular day. Isaiah chapter 1, and we're going to come back to John chapter 2 as soon as we've read this passage, but I want you to see the words here in Isaiah chapter 1, and I'll begin reading in verse number 11. Isaiah chapter 1, verse number 11. This would have been before the Babylonian captivity of God's people. Isaiah chapter 1, verse number 11. I'll begin there. I'll read down through verse number 20. Isaiah the prophet is speaking. The Holy Spirit of God is giving him the message of God to his people, the Jews. And in verse 11, the Bible says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? God is asking his people... What is your purpose for offering these sacrifices that you offer to me? Why are you doing what you're doing? To us today, we could say, why do you have the standards that you have? Why are you serving in the ministries you're serving in? 
what, what is your purpose? He goes on, I am full, like filled up or fed up. My dad used to say, I'm up to here. <laughs> okay, I've had it up to here. It's kind of a biblical expression. I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. And I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. Now, wait, we might say, well, wait a minute. God, you instituted this. What, what do you mean you're, you're fed up with it? You're the one, this was your idea. You're the one who told us to do it. Verse 12, when ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain or empty oblation. Incense is an abomination unto me. It, it, it turns my stomach. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. You, you turn that which is holy into that which is unholy. Your new moons, verse 14, and your appointed feast, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. But when ye spread forth your hands... I will hide mine eyes from you. He says, when you go to pray, you reach out for help. I will hide mine eyes. I'll look the other way. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you. Make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. In other words, in the, in the Old Testament, Isaiah's day, what was the problem? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Superficial worship. Going through the motions of worshiping God. They had music. They went through the motions of praying. They made sacrifices which cost them. It cost them to do it. It was not without cost. It had cost to it. They made sacrifices they made pilgrimages. They would come from all around the area to Jerusalem to make their offerings. And God says, I am fed up with your hip hypocritical lives. And he says in verse 17, learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. He's talking about true love here in true purity in the Old Testament. Come now and let us reason together. I love that statement. That's what I seek to do every time we open the Word of God together. Come, let's reason. Let's think this through. I'm not just here to give you a three points in a poem and you go away thinking, oh, that was good or that was bad. No, let's reason together. Let's think this through what the Word of God says, saith the Lord. And then he says this, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword. If you're going to live, if you're going to persist in your sinfulness, you're going to reap what you sow. But if you'll turn, if you'll listen, if you'll reason together, then I will give you grace and I will bless you. That's what he was saying in the Old Testament. And that is the message in the New Testament as well. Turn back to John chapter 2. You know, if Jesus had preached a message here in John 2 after he threw out the money changers, 
and these people who were hypocrites in their worship and the oxen and the sheep, if Jesus had preached a message in this particular day, I think he would have preached, out, preached a very similar message to what he preached, what was preached in Isaiah chapter 1. The issue was the same. Hypocrisy. My children sing a song, I think they learned it with Patch the Pirate, Hippocritter. I don't know it, so I can't sing it. But it goes something like this. Hippocritter, hippocritter, you say one thing and you do the oppositer. Okay, that's all I know. But I don't mind them singing it. They can sing it all they want. And you know, and, and none of us like a hypocrite, but all of us have been a hypocrite. Where we say one thing, we have these lofty standards that we hold everybody else to, but we ourselves are hypocrites. We ourselves are not pleasing the Lord. We are, ourselves are not following the leading of his Holy Spirit. We're not honoring his word. We're not obeying him. And the issue in Isaiah's day and the issue in Jesus' day was hypocrisy. It was false religion. It was superficial worship. The hearts of God's people were dishonorable. They weren't honoring God. They were irreverent toward God in their worship. And it infuriated the Lord. And, and did you catch that in Isaiah 1, the, how upset God was with their worship? Did you catch it? Yes. And that explains to us and helps us understand Jesus' mindset when he walked into his father's house and he saw all around him thousands of people in hypocrisy, going through the motions of worship, but who didn't truly love God. You know, God's people were going through the motions, but they weren't pleasing God. Their religion, the religious, uh, they were religious, but they were irreverent. They were dedicated, but they were dishonorable. In the book of Amos, we won't turn there, but in the book of Amos, God actually tells the people, stop singing, I'm tired of hearing you sing. Because your hearts aren't in it. Is that offensive? You know, God knows our hearts. And he says, stop singing. You're just making noise because you're not singing from your heart. It's not in your heart. You don't love me. And, in, you know, in the Old Testament, with all of the sacrificial system that God had ordained, his ultimate goal was still that his people would love him and obey his word, and walk by faith, even in the Old Testament system. And so when it comes to hypocrisy and this superficial and false worship, Jesus felt the same way that Isaiah felt in his day. And I imagine, as he looks at our hearts today, the question could be, what does he find in our hearts? Does he find something sincere and genuine? I'm not asking for perfect people. God knoweth our frame, okay? He knows who we are. But wherever you are at in your walk with the Lord, whether you're a newborn believer, you've been saved for uh, three months or, or a year, or, or maybe you've been saved for 15 years or 20, and some of you have been saved for over 50 years, what does God find in our heart? Does he find a sincere love for him, a passion for him, a desire for him, a desire to please him and to know him? And so... Let's, let's look at, at Scripture this morning, and we'll start in verse number 12, and, and let's see what they reveal to us about God and how they apply to us. Verse 12, in, verse, in chapter 2, it says, And after this, after the miracle in Cana, 
he went down to Capernaum, which would have been on the northwestern shore of Galilee. Um, this would have been the area they think Peter ended up uh, having a house there. Um, and he goes to this place, Capernaum, which was a fishing village with his brothers, his brethren, and his disciples, only five, maybe six, with him. And they've only known him a few days, maybe a week. And they continued there not many days. And then, look, they head south down to Jerusalem in verse number 13. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, I notice again in this passage that God is omnipotent. Jesus was omnipotent, and we see that he has all power and all authority. And, and, and I say that because this, Jesus does in the temple what no man, no human man, no, no only human person could do. And, and what caused him to do it? Well, we'll notice that as we go along. Now, there's a couple things here. The Passover of the Jews was an annual feast followed by another feast that was seven days long called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And God had mandated both of these feasts, and many of you remember the account of Israel being delivered from Egypt, and they had been in bondage for, in Egypt for many, many years. Um, and God sent Moses and Aaron, you remember, to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt, and God had sent plagues. Do you remember some of the plagues? Flies and lice and um, frogs. Who can forget the frogs, right? The Nile River is turned to blood. Um, so there were many, of, many plagues that God sent, and it, Pharaoh's heart continued to be hardened, and God finally sent a tenth and final plague, and that was the killing of the firstborn. And this is where we get the Passover from. This was the very first Passover. And so if you didn't want the death angel, and God told Moses this, and Moses told this to his people, if you didn't want the death angel to visit your house that night, then you needed to follow the instructions of God for deliverance. The same is true today, though we don't fear a death angel. But if you want the deliverance of the Lord in your life, then you need to follow the instruction of the Word of God. And what was the instruction for them in those days in Egypt? Well, you had to sacrifice a lamb. You had to apply the blood of that sacrificial lamb to the side post, the book of Exodus says in chapter 12, to the side post of your door and to the lintel. Using hyssop, you dip it in the blood of the lamb, and you'd apply it to the, to the side post and the lintel of that door. And even then, there was a picture that for deliverance, the shedding of blood was necessary. A lamb had to be slain. A lamb for every household. And it was a picture of a lamb that was going to be slain someday for the sins of the whole world. They would then eat that lamb together, and the lamb that had been slain, they would eat unleavened bread with it, and they had to be ready to go. Which is a unique, which is a miracle in itself, I find, because uh, there had been nine plagues prior, and Pharaoh even had said, okay, you can go, but then he had changed his mind. So if I'm an Israelite, do I really think he's going to let us go this time? Am I really going to pack up and be ready to go? I don't know. Pharaoh keeps saying no. He keeps changing his mind. But they had to be ready to go. It was an act of faith. You see, the application of the blood of the Passover lamb upon the doorpost and the lintel was a symbol of the work that the Messiah would do when he put his own blood upon the cross and provided deliverance from divine judgment for the entire world, all of humanity. 
And so the Passover was first carried out in Exodus chapter 12. God actually, in Exodus 12, tells Moses, you're going to do this forever after this. And then in Exodus chapter 23, he comes back and he commands his people to keep the Passover every year along with a couple of other feasts. And why? Because he never wanted his people to forget that he had delivered their ancestors, the people of Israel, from Egypt. And so I say all that to say this. Jesus was here in Jerusalem for the Passover in verse 13 because he was being obedient to his Father, his Heavenly Father. And the Bible says that Jesus obeyed everything in the law that was moral and ceremonial and religious and practical. In fact, Jesus' ministry was just beginning at this Passover, and his ministry was winding down at the last Passover. Remember the Lord's Supper? That was the last Passover. And he went to the cross the next day, and he died. But this time, it's different. He'd been there before. He'd been there every year as a, as a child growing up, obeying the law of God. But this time, it's different. He has begun his ministry, and he comes with a different mindset. Look at verse number 14. So he's in Jerusalem, and in verse 14 it says, And found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. What are they doing there? That's the question. What is it that Jesus found this particular day? And again, I tell you, this was not a small group of people with a dozen animals. The population of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, this time, was about 300,000 people. And I'm being conservative in my estimation. The population of Jerusalem was about 300,000 people. But historians record that at the time of the Passover, where Jews from all over the region would converge on Jerusalem to obey God's command and to observe the Passover, historians say that there was well over a million people it would swell to well over a million people that would be present in that city. Can you imagine that if that happened to Flint? Okay? Well over a million people. And some say there were as many as two to 2.7 million people in Jerusalem for the Passover. The place would have been packed. Okay? The inns couldn't hold everybody. Uh, but every house would have been full. If you had a house and you lived in Jerusalem, you'd have opened your home and you'd have let people in. A Jewish people were very hospitable. They would have let people in. They would have let people stay in their home uh, to observe the Passover together. Every room is full. And so I want you to know there's a, at least a million plus people in, in Jerusalem. And of those people, or I should say, of all the people who are converging upon Jerusalem, what is the one place, the one Building or edifice that is the focal point of all of these people, a million to two plus million people. The, 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 the building that's the focal point for all of these people converging upon Jerusalem is one building, it is the temple. They're all there for one reason. They're all going to go to the temple. And so you have, at any given time throughout that day, in those days, you have 10 to 20,000 people in the temple. Court of the Gentiles, court of the women would have been another court, and then a court where Jewish men could go. And you have all these people here. Josephus records he's it's not he's not 
inspired, he's not scriptural, but a his Jewish historian, he records that on that day, the priest would slay, he estimated, 250,000 lambs on that one day. And they would be slain. They probably would have to start before this time. I don't know how they could have done it, but the time period was about 3 to 6 o'clock. Historians record how they created conduit from the place where the animals were slain down to the brook Kidron so that they could get rid of the blood that flowed that day. And why all of this blood? Why all of this blood for all of these years? The Bible says in the New Testament, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. There's no remission of sin. See, we, we tend to look at ourselves as human beings, even those of us who are saved, and we say, well, we're not, we're not that bad. You know, my actions shouldn't require a penalty that harsh, but remember, the wages of sin is death. The payment for sin is death. And so God set this, he instituted these sacrifices because he wanted his people to know the depravity of, their, of themselves as human beings. God wanted them to, them to know that... Uh, that their sin required a price. An innocent lamb had to die because they had sinned. And in the Old Testament system, that, that, that lamb being put to death and his blood being shed did not take away their sin. It just covered their sin. And then every year they'd have to do it again. Year after year after year. But it was a picture, a gruesome picture, I would dare say, of what needed to happen, and that was that there needed to be a lamb, a single lamb, a spotless lamb, uh, a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And John Baptist had, had identified him. There's the lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. All these other lambs can't take away the sins, but this lamb, Jesus Christ, can take away the sins of the world. So by this time, the people who used to buy and sell outside the temple had moved their business inside the temple. And this is what Jesus finds. They're in the courtyard of the temple. And some people record how Annas, who was the high priest at this time, uh, they called it the Bazaar of Annas. Annas, the high priest, actually had people selling oxen and sheep so he could make a profit off of people coming to worship God. You see what's happening here. So they're making money off of these people, personal gain. And so when you get this, uh, Jesus goes inside of the temple and he, he's amongst this mass of humanity and they're coming and going. And why? They're, some of them probably sincerely and some just going through the religious motions. They were coming to talk to God. They were coming to praise God. Some were coming to worship God. Others were just there for the fellowship, I suppose. Their hearts were far from the Lord. Some were coming to see the temple, but you got all of these people. 10 to 20,000 people, in the middle of all this, they are selling oxen and sheep and doves. There are money changers seated at their tables. They're selling animals to the people who have come a long distance. And you can imagine how inconvenient and cumbersome it would have been to say, hey, we're going to the Passover. Should we, should we bring the sheep, or should we just buy one when we, when we get there? And what would you do? Wouldn't you just buy one when you got there? Some might have brought their sheep, but experience was telling these people, if I bring my sheep and the people in charge tell me, oh, that sheep isn't good enough, you're going to have to buy one of ours. That's what was happening. And they were doing it for personal gain. Your sheep isn't good enough, uh, but you can buy one of ours. You see what was happening. 
And uh, so they, if their sacrifice was rejected, they would have to purchase one of the temple animals anyway. And uh, this would force the people to purchase one of the temple animals, and they were charging exorbitant prices, I should say. Everybody had to pay for an animal. And by the way, if you were from another country, they only accepted a certain currency, and this was the reason for the money changers. So if you were from another country, and you had different currency, you would have to come and you'd have to exchange. And the historians record that the exchange rate was anywhere from 10 to 12%. They were making money on the people who were coming in obedience to the Lord all along the way, and they were doing it in the temple, in the house of God. And Jesus calls it his father's house. So I say all of this because we need to understand why Jesus was angry. Jesus walks in and he sees these people irreverently and hypocritically going through the motions of worship and religion, and he's enraged. Pure religion, by the way, in James 1, that's undefiled before God and the Father is this, to love. It's true love and it's true purity. To love the widows and their affliction the orphans and their affliction, and to keep yourself pure and unspotted from the world, that's pure religion. True purity and true love. And that's not just New Testament, that's in the Bible from start to finish. And that's what God was after, but that's not what these people were after. And Jesus comes into his father's house and he sees there's this business and extortion taking place within the temple. And this is why Jesus would later say in Matthew 21 and verse 13, And when he comes back at the end of his ministry, he says, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. You're extorting, you're stealing. You're making a mockery of worship. You're doing it for you. By the way, you know what? I I haven't seen any goats or sheep or oxen here today. Marissa, did you bring an oxen with you? No? Okay. We don't have those. I haven't seen any money changers. But what, what was their motivation? It was selfish. And I ask us all here this morning to examine our own hearts. Why do we do what we do? Why are you here this morning? What does God, when he looks into your heart and he knows your heart, what does he see? Are you doing it to keep up your reputation? Are you doing it to impress others? Are we doing it so we feel better about ourselves? Because if we are, if that's our motive, if that's why we're here, then it really is hypocrisy. It really is a false worship. It's man-centered. Why, why are you a member of Trinity Baptist Church? Is it because do we, do, you have, do we have a twisted way of thinking that, well, I'm here because this church has loftier standards, or this church is better than, more loving than another church? We, we ought not get wrapped up into that. And I'm not against standards. But what, what does God find in our hearts? You know, we, we could add to all of this, there would have been about 270 temple police to keep the peace. Next door was the fortress Antonia, which was the Roman fortress, and there would have been a garrison of Roman soldiers there. They... They had built a tower so high they had to look down into the temple at this point. And so in an act of righteous indignation, Jesus does act. Look at verse 15. And when he had made a scourge, 
that means a lash or a whip of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple. And the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. Now, that, this lash would have been, the, I think, the equivalent of a modern day, some binder twine, uh, several strands put together. And Jesus began to drive all of the people and the sheep and the oxen out of the temple. Now, what do you think that would have done to the temple, to the atmosphere? Do you think this would have been well-received? Remember now, how long has Jesus been at his earthly ministry at this point? A week? Ten days? Fourteen days? (laughs) He doesn't have a reputation of making people who are dead come to life. Making blind to see. He doesn't have that reputation yet. He doesn't have the reputation. It hasn't spread like it will have by the end of his earthly ministry. It's not there yet. We have a man who's a Galilean, dressed like a Galilean. And he's in Jerusalem. He looks like he's from the country. You get my point. His his, uh, dialect would be different than the way they spoke in Jerusalem. He was a Galilean. He was from Nazareth. Remember, Nathaniel, does any good thing come out of Nazareth? And there, there had been other times when there was unrest in the temple. The historian Wyland gives an account of unrest in the temple when some unhappy Jews, they were unhappy with the high priest, and they began to take lemons. And uh, this is not a biblical account. They began to take lemons, and they began to pelt the high priest with lemons because they were upset with him. Okay? You know what he did? He called in his guard and he slaughtered a couple thousand people. We're not talking about godly people here. Do you understand that? Religious people, yes. Political people, yes. Not godly people. And Jesus did more than pelt the high priest with lemons. (laughs) But what's the response? And this is why I say it, it is a miracle what Jesus Christ did. The miracle, I think, is in the words in verse 15 where it says he drove them all out of the temple. Jesus pronounced judgment upon the entire religious system. The people that were there, the money changers that were there, those who were selling the oxen and the sheep and the doves, the people, their their mindset from top to bottom was wrong. There was hypocrisy at every level, and it really is an unimaginable act of power. Jesus, by the way, wasn't being cruel to people. It was an act of judgment upon a perverted system of religion, one that turned God's stomach. Look at verse number 16 and 17. And he said unto them that sold the doves, Take these things hence. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Father's house. The Jews never called God their father. That would have been blasphemous. They would have considered that blasphemy to say that. In fact, over in John chapter 5, John chapter 5, I think it's verses 17 and 18. uh, You're close by. You can look there. Chapter 5, verse 17 says, But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. So he, 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 he calls, he says, God is my father. Then in verse 18, Therefore, because Jesus had called God his father, therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because not only had, uh, had broke, he broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. They sought to kill him. Now here in chapter 2, in verse number uh, 
what was it, 16, he refers to God as his father. And then he says this, Make not my father's house an house of merchandise. We get our English word emporium from that word uh, merchandise. And it means extensive commerce like New York City or like London, not like Flint. Not extensive commerce in Flint. But extensive commerce. Some cities are known for this. Jerusalem and the temple had become known as a place of commerce. And they're making money off of each other. As people are coming to supposedly go through the motions of worshiping God, and Jesus says, don't make my father's house, which is supposed to be a place of worship to God, a place of commerce where you're making money off of each other. In verse 17 it goes on, and his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Notice how they remembered. What did they remember? They remembered a passage of scripture in Psalm. By the way, these men, his disciples, were Old Testament saints. How did an Old Testament person get saved? The same way a New Testament person gets saved. By the grace of God through faith. That's how. We all should know that. By the grace of God through faith. They had believed upon the Lord. They had believed upon the promises of God that he would send the Messiah. They didn't understand everything. But they believed by faith. And these Old Testament saints, these disciples of Jesus, were knowledgeable of the word of God. And when Jesus cleansed the temple, years later, they were reminded of some things. And here they're reminded at this time of Psalm 69, verse 9, where David was calling God's people back to genuine worship of God. And David had said this, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. In other words, God... I'm with you on these things. When people reproach your house, it is offensive to me. God, when people sin against you, in a sense, they are sinning against me. But it was more than that for the Lord Jesus Christ. David's words were prophetic because here Jesus is saying, I am God, is what he was saying of himself. And 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 the disciples looked at Jesus and they understood that he was dishonored. He was offended. He was in pain because his father was offended. His father was pained. His father was dishonored. You know, I, I think, I read these words and I, I wonder, are we as God's people, we, we call ourselves God's people, we call ourselves Christians, little Christ, we, we believe what God says, that we are indwelt by his spirit. I wonder, are we offended by what is offensive to God? Is it okay for you and for me to sit in front of the television and to look at something that you would say, that I would say, that the Bible would say is offensive to God, is it okay for you and for me to sit there and look at it and watch it and laugh at it? It's not okay. Is it okay for you and for me, as God's people, to snicker at things that, that are off color and offensive to God? Is it okay for us to do that? And the answer is no, it's not okay. Jesus was offended. Look at verse number 18. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? What gives you the right to do these things? They were always asking for a sign. If they, by the way, by the way, Jesus talked about Capernaum and Bethsaida. And he said, If I had done the miracles 
in Sodom and Gomorrah that I've done in front of you, those cities would have repented of their sin. But you've seen all of these miracles, and you, your hearts are hardened. So be careful of always wanting a sign. Well, you know what? I'll believe if God does. Listen, if, if these people, if their hearts had been humble to the Lord, you know what? They would have responded in faith, believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he did. It was a miracle what he did. He exercised such authority and power. Verse 19, Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building. And they're referring to what temple? Jesus was referring to his earthly body. The Jews were referring to the temple of Herod. The temple that Herod was in, still in the process of rebuilding. Herod was quite a, a character. Okay. Uh, Herod the Great, uh, he had Masada built. He had, uh, uh, we call it Caesarea, Caesarea built. Uh, an amazing, he decided he wanted it there. There wasn't any water there uh, to drink, but he wanted it there, so we're going to have it anyway. And he, they say from the sea, it gleamed bright. Uh, uh, on Masada, he, his place of retreat they had a, a place, a, a, a place for. Uh, it basically would be the equivalent. What are those places? They're full of steam. A sauna. There you go. See. All right. Thanks. Uh, so it, it was basically a sauna, and it had a floor that was elevated, and it had water and steam coming into the room, and uh, and he was very concerned about being exfoliated, scraping off the dead skin and things like that. I'll stop there. But 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 Herod the Great. Herod the Great was quite, quite uh, a builder, and he was interested in building the temple. And so they say to Jesus here, they totally misunderstand what he's saying. He's saying, I'm, you, you're going to kill this temple, this body, and I'm going to raise it up in three days. How about that for a sign? And they say, you're, you're going to destroy this temple, and, and, uh, and you'll build it up again. It's taken, in three days, it's taken 46 years, and it's still not done. But of course, in verse 21, he spake of the temple of his body, when therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. And I say, and we'll read this, and the simple truth of this is, Jesus was omniscient. He knew the future. He not only was he omnipotent, not only was he God in human flesh, but he also was omniscient, which is a big word which means God knows everything. He knew the future. And then look at verse number 23 as we draw to a close. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. And we might say to that, well, amen. But look at verse 24. Jesus knew what their faith really was. Verse 24. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them. And the word commit there is the Greek word pistuo, which is the, translated as believe. In other words, we can say it this way. They believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. I don't know what kind of belief they believed in him with. But it doesn't seem to me that it was saving faith. I think, I think he wowed them. I think they were impressed by Jesus. Wow, because of the many miracles he did. Wow, he was impressive to them. But I don't think they believed upon him for the salvation of their souls. 
And the Bible says here in verse 24, he did not commit himself unto them because he knew all. He knew all. And I ask you this question as we close this morning, what about you? What does God know about you? I'm not, I'm not, my goal is never to make you feel bad. That's not my goal. I don't want you to leave here depressed or discouraged because you feel you're a failure. Jesus, in this passage we see, was omnipotent, he was all-powerful, and is, and he was omniscient, and he still is to this day, and he knows our hearts. And what does he find? You know, we could, we could read this passage and say, what, what does this have to do with us? You know, we don't have, the temple doesn't exist anymore, and on the on the Temple Mount today, there is what we know of as the Dome of the Rock, a Muslim building. So we could say, well, after all, there isn't a temple anymore, but there is. In fact, the Bible tells us that our, each one of us are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that he dwells within us. The Bible tells us that this assembly of believers is his body, his temple, his dwelling place. And when Jesus looks at us, what does he find? When he walks into our midst, what does he know about you and me? 1 Peter 4.17 tells us we're to judge ourselves. He says, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. You see, God isn't interested in a hypocritical showing of religion. He wants it to be genuine. And he always has wanted it to be genuine. In the Old Testament, he wasn't interested nearly in, as much in the sacrifices of oxen, bulls, lambs. That wasn't his goal. He wanted there to be sincerity. That's what he told David, right? In Psalm 51, David wrote, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. A heart that's broken into pieces, a heart that's open and honest with God. Not a heart that's hiding things. 1 John 1, 9 tells us how we can be clean. If we confess our sins. That's if we agree with God about our sins. Don't defend it, don't hide it. If we agree with God about our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's what he did in the temple that day. He wanted it to be clean. At the end of his ministry, he's going to come back to the temple. He's going to do the same thing again. And today, he wants you and me to be clean. Let's take our hymnals, and if you'd stand with me,